This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Hello and welcome to Bookmark This, a Straits Times podcast in which we talk about books and the headlines and recommend to you new reads. I'm Olivia Ho and I am joined today by my co-host To Wen Li. Hello. It's that time of the year when we round up the Booker Prize shortlist for you. We have six books getting for £50,000. So on a scale of 1 to 10, how surprised were you by the shortlist? I'd say 8. Yeah, it was pretty um, pretty shocking. I think mostly because uh, people we expected to be on the shortlist, like Hilary Mantle, two-time Booker Prize winner for the Thomas Cromwell trilogy. We thought she would be on it for The Mirror and the Light. Mm. And Tyler, Colin McCann, all previous award winners, uh, they were all um, edged out. So this shortlist has been hailed as the most diverse shortlist that we've seen in a really long time. It's a majority women, majority writers of colour, and as previously said, majority debut novels. Yeah, and it also seems quite fitting, right? I mean, this diversity in the lineup at a time when the topic of racial injustice seems to be making headlines um, increasingly often, you know, Mm -hmm. with the death of George Floyd and also the Black Lives Matter movement. And now with COVID, right, the COVID pandemic, um, minority groups seeming disproportionately um, affected by it. So it seems quite timely, although uh, obviously I'm sure that they picked um, these titles for their merit, based on their own merits. I mean, it wasn't just about the names behind them. Yes, the judges have stressed that it is entirely about the books and not about the personalities. So the most prominent name on the shortlist would be Sitsi Dangaremwa, who became the first black Zimbabwean woman to publish a novel in English, and that was Nervous Conditions, her debut novel in 1988. So she has been shortlisted for This Mournable Body, which wraps up what Nervous Conditions started in the 1980s. So Wenli, you've read both of these. What do you think? Yeah, so this is actually um, Zitsi Dangaremboa's third book in the trilogy. So it's a trilogy that begins as a kind of coming-of-age story about Tambudzai, who is um, an adolescent girl living in Zimbabwe, in a Zimbabwean village, in the very first installment, which was Nervous Conditions. So in that book, um, it begins with this famous, or this memorable first line, I was not sorry when my brother died. So it's very trenchant and it, you know, it sticks in your mind. So basically, um, after her brother dies, um, she has a chance to receive a good education. So she, um, thanks to a gener- the generosity of, a, of her uncle, who is more well-off than, she, than her family is, um, she gets to attend a convent school. Um, and then um, we, we kind of see her at different stages in her life as we move through the, th- the trilogy, um, of which um, this monable body is um, the final installment. So in this book, she's a lot more psychologically contorted than she was in the very first book, Nervous Conditions. We now see Tambudzai as a woman approaching middle age. Um, she's now living in the Zimbabwean capital of Harare and um, trying to make ends meet, you know, living in a rundown youth hostel. Um, and um, it seems like her life hasn't lived up to the promise, or at least it hasn't lived up to what she thought it could have been with a good education and a university degree. So she's cynical, she's bitter, and um, and yeah, it's just we just see her um, not so much failing at every turn, but she's just not successful. She's not succeeding, and she's quite miserable. And there was one scene close to the early part of the book that left an impression on me. Um, basically, she's on a bus. She's on a minibus in the capital, and suddenly one of her hostel mates struggles to board the bus. And as she does so, a bunch of really lewd men in the crowd they start to taunt her. And it becomes a kind of mob. So I'll just read out this passage to you um, where the hostel mate struggles to get on the bus. The crowd ripples and fidgets, hums and buzzes with amusement. Energy swirls out from this mirth. 
It slides you from your seat to the ground and into the throng. The crowd guffaws. You do too. As you do, you grow and grow until you believe you are much bigger than yourself, and this is wonderful. So it's just really perverse, right? She she becomes like one of the mob. She starts to mock her, her housemate Gertrude as well, and um, it just struck me as being very unsettling. And if anything. I think what um, this vulnerable body does best is its psychological complexity. So we really get into the psyche of Tambudzai, and we get this insight into her struggles, which are partly self-inflicted on one level, but she's also bound and a victim of all these external forces that cons- conspire against her. You know, um, being a black woman in um, independent Zimbabwe at a time where where, where she's still a victim of um, white privilege, for example, discrimination. Um, because she's black as well as a woman. So, yeah. Now, the only other writer on the shortlist who has published another novel is Maza Mengiste, born in Ethiopia and based in the United States. Her family fled Ethiopia during the 1970s Ethiopian Revolution when she was four years old. And uh, it's about this period that she wrote her first book, Beneath the Lion's Gaze. Now, The Shadow King is her second book. It pays homage to the women warriors who fought against the Italian army that Mussolini sent to invade Ethiopia in 1935. And it follows Herod, a servant girl whose master is the warlord Kidani. And he leads the resistance against the Italians. And uh, he and Herod, along with Kidan's wife, Asta, takes up arms to fight. Now, this is a extremely brutal novel. Uh, deals with the atrocities of war and genocide, but also domestic violence, the culture of rape. And uh, throughout the novel, there's this refrain that goes, there is no escape, there is no way out except through battle. So it keeps, uh, so Herod is constantly telling herself that she has to, you know, whatever happens to her, she has to push through it. And uh, it begins with uh, Herod having, she's trying to hide, she has this rifle that is she inherited from her father. It's a very old model called a Wujigra. And uh, when, and as the, who has this contentious relationship with her because she believes that Kidani is trying to uh, seduce uh, Hero, which is in fact what Kidani is trying to do, um, and so that he can, so because he because he is interest, interested in her and later he will rape her in the course of the novel. Uh, anyways, Asta is comes in and discovers that Hero is hiding the gun and she tries to take the gun and then. Th- Kidani claims the gun for the war effort so much of it is Hira trying to get her gun back but also in a, in a way trying to get her her agency back her sense of you know her sense of legacy her sense of self and um, so what I enjoyed most about it is that is the way that imbues the Ethiopian struggle with mythical qualities I think that Mazumikiste is very aware of the tradition she's writing in, which is the war epic tradition. So she evokes uh, she evokes Greek myth like uh, Icarus. There are a lot of references to Icarus flying uh, and falling in the sun. And um, there's also the sense that she is subverting epics like the Iliad and the Aeneid. So the Aeneid, at least the Dryden version, I think it goes uh, of arms and the man I sing. So this would be more of a of arms and the woman I sing and um, normally in war epics women are considered to be the territory on which war fought they're the trophies they are the in the case of the Iliad they are the the instigator but never the active participant and so this book portrays women as active participants in combat and you know it asks you to rethink then what do you think of war what do you think of masculinity 
And of course, the Aeneid is about the founding of the civilization that becomes Italy, uh, which is the invading force here. And also in the novel, there is there are many references to the opera Aida by Verdi, which is one of the great Italian operas, and in which there is a captive Ethiopian princess who betrays her people for her love. And um, so again, it questions the way that the West has portrayed countries like Ethiopia civilizations, which they you know consider to be less culturally advanced than they were, but who have in fact had this long history of civilization. Mm. So, who is the shadow king of the title? Who is when? When does he appear? Ah, so, the shadow king is this this ruse that uh, Herod sort of. Um, I wouldn't say she instigates it, but she comes. She sort of comes up with it. Uh, there's this peasant minstrel who looks very much like the king Haile Selassie, who has escaped from Ethiopia with the invasion, and he's hiding out in Bath, England, and. This is, of course, very discouraging for the people. So they come up with this idea that they should dress this peasant up as the king and pretend that he's the, you know, their ruler, so as to boost people's morale. Uh, and the, but the peasant's name is Minim, which actually means nothing. It's and also a musical. Um, it's a it's a note, right? A kind of musical note. Yes, like it is, um, but not in not in Amharic, I think. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so so she is so here it is put in place in charge of guarding Minim and you know she's um so she's sort of parading this shadow king around. And of course shadow and light is a very important metaphor in the book. It keeps coming up. One of the one of the the techniques that Megaste uses is Crisis, and she uses a lot of photography. Uh, the reason why she does this is because uh, when Mussolini sent the uh, his army to invade Ethiopia, he sent ahead of them many photographers, and they were supposed to take photos of the native the the, the native locals in ways that uh, made them look sort of savage and um, uncivilized. So he would be able to, you know, it will um, optically it looked like it was a good thing to con to conquer them and to civilize them. So Mengiste um, describes a lot of these photographs in the novel, but she also, you know, sort of contextualizes them and shows the um, different perspectives, not just the singular camera perspective. And uh, one of the soldier, one of the soldiers who is doing the photography is this uh, Jewish soldier called Ettore Navara, and he is because um, this is nineteen thirty five. So eventually, he will be. He, he will be fighting. He's fighting for a side that will send his parents to a concentration camp. And uh, so the novel also deals with that conflict and, um, you know, how much you know, are you complicit in the violence that eventually comes around back to you? So this is an um, extremely gorgeous, gorgeously written novel. It's. Yes really gorgeous um the first line from the very first line which is um i think it's she does not want to remember but she's here and memory is gathering bones and uh, i'm going to read this part which is about Herod in the in the aftermath of a trauma so she it goes she is Herod, surrounded by darkness thick as flesh and she the pulsing wound at the center she is a feeble light slanting into the room through a crack in the wall. She is the light chewed up at the threshold of the wound. She is the pain pulsing alone in this black chamber where there is only this, only the dark, only the wound that will not stop shivering like a damaged heart. Inside her head is the memory of light cracking like a whip above her head, above the head of the girl who used to be Herod, daughter of Gitae and Fasil, born in a blessed year of harvest, 
above the girl who no longer has a head, who no longer has words, who no longer has memory, who no longer has a name, who was only a remembrance sinking into the dark hole of the forgotten. Yeah, so the writing is exquisite, it's beautiful. But do you think it's too beautiful, some might say, because she's, she's after all dealing with these very heavy topics? Yes, that is the that is the constant problem, isn't it, when we think about beauty in writing, beauty in violence. Um, I, for, for me, I think that because Mengistis project is elevation of what is ugly, um, I don't feel that she has taken away from the horror of what has occurred and in in fact that i think she there is this part in which um etore and etore is trying to show herod a photo that he took of herself as a prisoner and um she doesn't want to look at it she says uh, she could not bear witness to herself even as a semi-nude figure draped in wondrous light that was what he had wanted to show her, his ability to turn a starkly hideous moment into something else. So he thinks that because he has, you know, made her look beautiful, he, she looks beautiful, even though she's in this position of, um, you know, she's been captured, she's a prisoner. Um, he thinks that because the the photo is aesthetically pleasing, that that would make it better. But she herself is unable to, to bear witness to that. So I do think that, Megiste is aware of this, this conf- this you know conflict, this attempt. And does she reconcile it? I don't know if she does. I do think she tries quite hard to do so. And but it is a is something that can't be resolved. I think. Yeah, she's at least conscious of the, the complexity of it all. Yeah. Now, if you like what you're listening to, follow our podcast series Bookmark This on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. Like us and give us a rating too. Now, back to our show and on to our next book. As we said before, four of the novels on the shortlist are debuts, and that is a pretty high number. Debuts have won before, one most famously Arundhati Roy's The God of Small Things, and more recently Aravina Digga's The White Tiger. So the odds are good for the debuts. Um, now, Wendy, which of the debuts stood out for you? So I'm a big fan of Brendan Taylor's novel, Real Life, which is about a gay black man um, by the name of Wallace, who is a postgraduate biochemist in Midwestern, in a Midwestern college in the US. So basically, um, this revolves around Wallace and his charmed circle of graduate student friends, um, some of whom, you know, w- without realizing it, perhaps um, casually demean him in conversations, which are at times um, filled with microaggressions. Although... This novel doesn't really have a. I wouldn't say it has a. I wouldn't say it's particularly plot driven, and we do um, get a hint of that when he starts, you know, alluding to Virginia Woolf's *To the Lighthouse* in the novel, as well as to Proust. Um, so it's kind of like a nod to how um, Taylor, perhaps Taylor, the, the novelist, is shifting his focus away from plot. It's about experiences. It's about thoughts. It's about real life, told from the perspective of this man um, on the university campus. I was quite amazed that Taylor only spent five weeks on his manuscript. Really? He wrote it in five weeks, according to one of the interviews I read. It's quite incredible, especially when you when you consider how sharp and intricate the writing is. He turns to a lot of natural and scientific metaphors in his writing. He talks about sound skimming across water. And um, it's just full of these really trenchant observations um, from from Wallace's perspective. So the thing about Wallace is that he's filled with these really well-meaning friends, but a lot of them have difficulty understanding him and what he's going through. Um, so um, 
we learned that his father had died, but he he had a pretty complicated relationship with his father and he wasn't particularly upset, or at least that's what it seems like. So there's one scene where his friend Emma, you know, expresses her condolences when she finds out his dad has died. And um, this is Wallace, um, this description of Wallace. He says, um, he smiled because he was not sure how to meet someone's sympathy for him. It always seemed to him that when people were sad for you, they were sad for themselves, as if your misfortune were just an excuse for them to feel what it was they wanted to feel. Sympathy was a kind of ventriloquism. So he talks about how he's you know, caught in the confines of someone else's sympathy. Um, so we, we do get real insight into the struggles that Wallace is facing, almost at the expense of other aspects of the world he's trying to describe. So I feel that a lot of these side characters, um, like one, there's one hysterical woman called Dana who accuses him of being a misogynist um, and starts to talk about her struggles as well. And, and she comes across as this almost cardboard, uh, kind of cardboard character, as does another character by the name of Bridget who, is, who plays the role of the Asian woman. And so you get a feeling that some of these side characters just come in, they do their spiel and then they leave. So one gets a sense that the author is not really focusing so much on these people as they are on Wallace, um, which, which which I think could be deliberate as well. Um, Wallace's psychology is the one that is placed under the microscope, so to speak. So, Olivia, which um, debuts stood out for you? I think particularly for me, it was Burnt Sugar by Avni Doshi. Uh, she's American. Her parents uh, were immigrants from India. So Burnt Sugar is set in Pune, India, with a mother and a daughter, and they have this incredibly toxic relationship, like very disturbingly toxic. It opens with the line, I would be lying if I said that my mother's misery has never given me pleasure. Yeah, so Antara is the narrator of the novel. Her mother, Tara, is losing her memory. She has dementia, so she keeps, she forgets to pay the electricity bill. She forgets the name of the road she lives on, the century she's living in. She keeps thinking that Antara is still a little girl. And... For Antara, uh, she feels that her mother neglected her when she was younger. Um, she left her marriage. She sort of ran away to an ashram where she had this spiritual bender that involved becoming the lover of the the guru. And this is based on an actual ashram that uh, Afni Doshi's mother's family was connected to uh, in Pune. And even after they leave the ashram, they she has an affair with an artist and base and they have this extremely um, broken relationship where they constantly blame each other for things, and therefore Antara sees Tara's dementia as a kind of final attempt to escape responsibility because she's spent all these years going, "Oh, you neglected me when you were young, you know that's why I'm so messed up now." And uh, but now she can't even blame her mother. She can't even make her feel guilty about things that her mother cannot remember because they're all like, oh, you know, she poor thing, she can't remember. You should just let it go. And uh, Antara, she later, she has a daughter of her own and she experiences postpartum depression. So there's a sort of cyclical um, nature to the book. It's quite claustrophobic. Uh, it has, because Antara, the name itself is it both can be taken to mean of Tara as yet untara, so like not Tara. And they're both trying to escape several things. Uh, Tara is trying to escape her societal expectations when she, you know, she was pressed into marriage when she was quite young and she enters this very farcical household where she's expected to um, wait for her husband, like literally stand outside the door and wait for her husband to come home. And, um, and she, that's part of the reason why she 
eventually runs away. And uh, there's a sense that Tara was not actually meant to be a mother. And that's why she's, there are some people who just, you know, shouldn't have been mothers. And meanwhile, Antara is trying to escape her body. She, the, the novel follows her through her puberty and she's, she describes it as being like another, another person inside yourself that's trying to tear yourself, tear you apart to come out. But above all, they're usurping each other's positions. So towards the end, Antara's, um, Antara's, Antara starts thinking that Antara's daughter is her daughter, is Antara. And Antara herself, because she's already going through a lot because of the hormones and the postpartum depression, she is she just flips out. But yes, and that's um, so it's a very intense, febrile um, environment for a novel. It's lacerating. It's filled with food um, because Tara likes to cook a lot. <laughs> and um, so there's a lot of descriptions of food, but somehow it also makes you really queasy. There are all these scents that she picks up on, like um, her mother, Tara's mother-in-law eats um, garlic, very, um, Kashmiri pickled garlic, and the smell of it. It's just pungent. Yeah, so, and Tara describes it, the smell of it, digestive alien just filling the house all the time. And uh, it's just very, I, I don't know, it kind of puts you off motherhood altogether. I'm sure this is not the intention. And um, Doshi herself is a mother of, of two, uh, but she did also experience postpartum depression, and she said that she. Um, it has made her think a lot about who should be mothers in society and you know what it means when as a society you make people feel like they have to be mothers when it's not they might not necessarily want to be or should be mother and child relationships are actually a theme that run through a lot of the shortlists so there's another one at the heart of uh, Shuki Bain which is by Scottish American author Douglas Stewart and also in The New Wilderness by Diane Cook so Shuggy Bain is about a boy growing up in post-Thatcherite 1980s working-class Glasgow. It's This is a very draining read. So of all the shortlists, which is pretty depressing, I think this is the most depressing. It looks at the poverty grind and at addiction. So, and Shuggy's mother, Agnes, she's an alcoholic and she's the vortex that the novel circles kind of, um, she kind of sucks it in. And she's beautiful and she's full of big dreams and she thinks that she's going to be... She has so much promise as a, as a young girl, but she's also very destructive. Because um, she's an alcoholic, she keeps going back to the bottle. And there's one scene in the, near the beginning when she... Shuggy is five years old and they're sitting in their bedroom and she sets fire to the curtains while waiting for his cheating father to come back. And she's just hugging him and watching the fire burn until their father rushes in and, you know, has to beat, beat them out with his bare hands. And, yeah, so she loves her son very fiercely, but she can't, she can't seem to transcend that, the addiction that's destroying her. And that's part of why the novel's so hard to read. It is also a queer coming-of-age story. Um, they move to this place called Pithead, uh, which is an ext- uh, former mining town. Everyone's unemployed. The domestic abuse is rampant. And Shuggy is marked out as different from the beginning because he doesn't walk like the other boys. He plays with dolls. And he experiences these horrible instances of homophobia and sexual assault. So at some points, it reads like a litany of miseries. It is. It feels unrelentingly faithful, almost, uh, to these very, you know, things that are so horrible that they have to be real. Um, but you do have to brace yourself. Yeah, the books on this year's shortlist are 
very heavy going. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of which, um, yeah, that brings us to our next book, The New Wilderness by Diane Cook, which deals with ecological issues, right? Yeah, it is the one sh- novel on the shortlist that looks towards the future. But guess what? The future is very grim. So it's set in this dystopia where urban pollution is so bad that children in the cities are dying from it. And this this woman, B, she decides to leave the city and join this experiment called the wil- in the wilderness zone. So it's the it's a protected zone. It's the last wilderness on earth, and the people who live in it have to survive as nomads, and they can't settle down. They have to forage. They are only allowed to produce limited amounts of waste. So they're heavily regulated by this other group called the rangers, who follow them and make sure that they're moving and find them if they are you know leave too much waste lying around. And um, the reason why B moves to the wilderness is because of her daughter, Agnes, another Agnes, um, who will die if they stay in the city because of the pollution. And it opens with B giving birth to a stillborn baby. And the thing to note is that people die quite frequently in the wilderness and they're all very desensitized to it. And then Cook... What Cook does very well is to demonstrate that sort of paradigm shift of thinking that you need to survive in the wild. There's one scene where they try to explain to people back in the city, because they're allowed to write letters. Um, they, For example, you know, today we lost Jane, or this other day we lost Jane, and also our best knife in an accident. Oh and dear. The, the thing is that while we miss Jane, because she was quite a good singer, we kind of miss the knife more. <laughs> yeah, and people just don't get that. And they're all like, oh, these, these are so well, horrible people they've become. But um, what Cook is trying to say is that in, if you're trying to survive, right, you think of there are certain things that are just more important to you. You think of what is going to help the rest of you live longer, you know, and that's unfortunately that's not Jane. And this, yeah, so and she says that, and that the fact is that people do, in fact, think this way already in civilization it's just that we kind of don't voice it so we're you know partially during the pandemic when we're like uh, oh yes well many one million people have died and we can't think of we can't think of that number it's not possible for us to empathize with every single person so we're just like yes some of these people matter more to us than the other people Mm. yeah and it's post climate anxiety because it's set past the point where global warming can be stopped it's like it's climate fatalism. Yeah. <sighs> what a sad shortlist. Okay. I must say that um, even though it's a very depressing shortlist, it's, I'm impressed at how thematically tight it is. There are so many themes, so many resonances. That it's important, though. <laughs> it, I, just, I know it's not the point of the shortlist, but uh, from the reporter's point of view, it's great. Love it. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. So, like, you know, how this mournable body and the Shadow King, they're both African feminist anti-colonial narratives, and their real life and Shiggy Bane, their queer coming-of-age stories with protagonists who are marginalized, not just because of sexuality, but because of their race or class or both. Yeah, so it's you know it's a very nicely matched set. I know that's not the point of the booker, but but it's nice to have, I guess. So yeah. Olivia, who do you think is going to win this year? Well, I'm really rooting for the Shadow King. I just love it. I think it's extraordinary. Um, yeah, that seems to be the crowd favorite, right? I think Shadow King will win as well, but I've also got a soft spot for real life. I don't think it will win, but I I really enjoyed it. Well, we never know. It could be the dark horse in, this, the, yeah. in this race. Yeah, but no. So, who do you think will win the booker? We'll find out on November the 19th. Once again, thank you for listening to us. I'm Olivia Ho. And I'm Tolwyn Lee. You have been listening to our Bookmark This podcast. We'll catch you in our next episode. That was an SBH podcast by The Straits Times. 
Find us on Spotify, Apple, or Google Podcasts, or streaming on Google Home. Do feedback to us at podcast.sbh.com.sg. You can also check out more podcasts on various topics at the Straits Times, the Business Times, and Money FM eighty nine point three.